Golden Deer Productions. Golden Deer. Oh, oh, wait, was that not it? Hey, enter, just, you forgot to enter. Whoa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good night. And that whoa sounded kind of weird. This is Connor Hallway of the Golden Hours Podcast, and this is a quick GDP minute. Now, guys, yo, I'll be honest, dude. This podcast just wrenches at my heart, brother. Because sometimes you're just like, what am I doing this for, man? And then sometimes you're like, wait, running these episodes are a blast. And I just had a great one with Adam Robitel, the director of The Escape Room in Insidious, the fourth installment of Insidious. And um, good dude. You guys know the deal here, though, dude. If you get any sort of value, all we ask is you share it with a friend. When, when I say we, I mean me. The heartbeat of Golden Deer Productions. Big Bonnie. But please, just share it with a friend, guys. If you really get anything from this episode, go super organically. It means like it means more than you can imagine. You're just sharing it. I want the show to grow. You guys know my goal. I think we can really, over time, give Jimmy Kimmel, Jimmy Fallon a little bit of a run. It's no knock at those guys. I love their shows. But I really think we can do something scripted like that eventually. You know, a little bit of a, a late night type show. Now, Adam was a great guy, super transparent, talked a lot about his success in the movie world, how he was kind of just fucking up until he was like 26, how he was an editor, how his first movie took off with Netflix, all this stuff. He's a Boston guy from Revere, and um, really nice dude. I'm really glad we met. Big hiker. And uh, I think for all you movie fans out there, I would definitely watch The Taking of Deborah Logan, first installment of The Escape Room, and he says he's in post-production on a Netflix show right now, so... All good stuff, brother. I really want to take the show off Zoom, and um, I got some news about the brand coming up. I'll be honest with you guys. I, you know what? Fuck it. I'll tell you now. I'm going to do something a little more scripted. I am moving to Los Angeles about three days from this recording, and uh, it's time, man. It's time. I've been going back and forth on this for so long, like whether I should do this or not, and... Um, it's time. Anyway, enjoy this episode. I'm going to record a solo episode about that moving forward, and uh, let's get it, brother. Golden Deer Productions. Golden Deer. Oh, oh, wait, was that not it? Hey, enter, just, you forgot to enter. Hey, this is Adam Robitel. This is my golden hour. All right, we're caught in the simulation. <laughs> Appreciate oh, you joining God. me, man. Thank you. My pleasure. I think to to start off, maybe I'll just ask if you believe in simulation theory. Stimulation theory. Simulation theory. Simulation theory. Uh, you'll have to brief me. I, I believe in I, I believe in stimulation theory. Uh, tell me about stimulation theory. I don't know if it's a real theory, Adam, but I do know that some people believe that the human race is actually just caught within a simulation, and someone is. There's a higher power overseeing this whole thing and just watching how it plays out. Yeah, I, I doesn't Elon Musk ascribe to that on some level? I believe so. Yeah, I mean, it feels like a simulation with a drunk landlord, right? Like just making arbitrary decisions. I'd agree. I think. Yeah. Um, have you ever had moments in your life where, you're like, that just seems really surreal? Yeah, and there's certainly been synchronicity and weird coincidences and stuff. I think as as pattern-seeking animals, we look for coincidences that may or may not exist. You know, uh, lightning means you know storm, growl means lion, prayers get miracles. You know, so who knows? I, I want to believe we're in a simulation. I want to believe there's something more than this meat sack that I'm inhabiting right now. Well, I'm sure as we were talking about on the phone, you had some some sort of existential conclusion when you were in Bryce Park, right? Bryce Canyon. Yeah, I mean, I'm like 43 years old. I've lost a parent. You know, I, I kind of I was raised Catholic, but, you know, I then I discovered Carl Sagan and science. And uh, I was thinking the other day, you know, I was like 16. I was working as a lifeguard. And I remember just sitting with this gal who 
her parents were mathematicians and I was like reading the Celestine prophecy at the time, this book about like the spirit of trees and all this stuff. And I'm like, look at all the trees, the living spirit. You could, and I really believed. And, and she was like, well, no, I don't, I don't believe in God. And I was like, what, uh, how, how, why, how, you know? And, but it started this journey of like critical thinking. And as you get to middle age, you start to go, fuck, you know, you, you, I'm sorry. I don't know if I can swear on your, on your show here, but, good. Uh, but you hope there's something more, you know? And uh, so I'm on a path now to try to usually through nature to try to, you know, at least get some spirituality in my life um, because it's pretty grim if it's this all there is, you know? So I think that's why we gravitate towards telling stories, you know? Um, and it was reading this Reddit sub article about like how atheists deal with their own death and are they more pessimistic and, you know, how do they deal with it? And th interestingly, they, a lot of them end up creating their own constructs. They create a narrative for their lives. They find significance in their lives in a way that religion gives a lot of people. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I'm on the, I'm on the path and trying to figure it out. In terms of this, the simulation of it all, I, I mean, I feel like Mark Zuckerberg's going to figure that out. We're all going to be living in meta somehow. Yeah, the meta is way over my head. I really still don't fully understand it. I actually bought my first NFT. I don't know if you're tapped into that world at all. And it had to be the most confusing purchase I've ever had in my life. <laughs> Dude, like it was like translate polygon into Ethereum. There's a gas fee and then it changes the maintenance fee. And I'm like, what is going on here, man? Yeah, the NFTs are a little above my head. I'm, I, I, mean, I was listening to that Dogecoin story and stuff and like, uh, you know, so it, 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 the whole the whole business behind it is really interesting and it seems like the next gold rush. Um, but, you know, it, it just seems like, it. you know, I have business friends who say that it's complete shamble, it's not true value and it's all it's all just an illusion. But, you know, and, and in terms of like, you know, living in a simulation, I just feel like it's bad for humanity. You know, we're also we're talking over Zoom right now, and it's like we are social animals, and we we need physical social contact. And I, I just I fear for the future where we're all sitting in chairs like the end of Wally, -E, like all fat and like drinking Slurpees, and you know, you know, and not actually being with each other. You know, so and the technology is only going to get more and more pronounced. So you're in this headset, you're in virtual space. And you're, we're just not actually engaging in a real world way. So who knows, man, uh, you know, well, if the pandemic continues. It's like, maybe that's just the only thing we're going to be able to do safely. Well, I think like most technology, I'm sure people before the telephone came out probably had a similar sentiment as to you right now saying like, you know, technology is totally stripping away the human existence, but it seems like with every wave of technology, human spirit kind of pokes through a little bit. Yeah. No, that's true. I mean, there was an amazing uh, documentary that just dropped about Tesla, uh, SpaceX and how, you know, the privatization of space and just all these really smart people trying to get us into space again. And there's a lot of good that's happening in the world. I think, you know, we, we with the 24 hour news cycle, it's just doom and gloom, doom and gloom and gloom. And naturally, because of this horrific thing that's happening in Ukraine, it just feels like the world is on fire constantly. And, you know, if you read a book like Sapiens, uh, you realize we're actually much safer than we've ever been historically, you know, and, and though we see these horrific mass shootings, there was another one on a subway today in New York City. Yeah. Um, it just seems really, really grim, but we forget, you know, it's not like the Mongols are coming in and destroying tens of thousands of people and, you know, in these religious wars and stuff. So, so we are safer. It just feels like the, it just feels constantly, I don't know about you, but like the world's burning. Um, so, you know, we'll see. Well, yeah. Like think of this, think of if you were on your hike in Bryce Canyon, no cell phone. And you're like, you know what? I want to go PR a climb. Like I want to have the most elevation I've ever had in a day or it's a really hot day. I want to get up on that peak and you broke your leg. How are you getting down the mountain and finding medics? Right. No, it's true. <laughs> no, it's true. Yeah. And you know, 150 years ago, I would have died from an infection. So, you know, uh, science sort of 
progresses and we live longer and although it's, it's it sounds like right now the median like life expectancy is actually going down a, a year or two so that's kind of disturbing it's been going up 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 and then now it's oh we're gonna you know so um no it's true i mean look we have a lot of modern conveniences the trick is to not be trapped by them i mean i'm i'm so addicted to my phone i couldn't imagine being in college right now trying to study you know with the with the phone that i'm constantly checking it's like i was telling you yesterday like my add is on full parade and it's hard for me to sit. that's why i love airplanes you know because i can sit in an airplane and just work for eight hours i'm i'm disturbed so that it is a i think is a cognitive and behavioral component to it but but yeah man i'm not going to complain about technology it's certainly you know definitely part of my life <clears throat> the trick is to not be chained by it there's also uh something stimulating about airplanes just the constant vibration i think for me at least like with my adhd i perform better at a computer if there's uh some sort of humming in the distance or there's some sort of motion so yeah some white noise exactly you feel the yeah. same way yeah i do i do um and i like i used to love going to a coffee shop because at least it felt like you were getting out and you know you could just work and then you could people watch and then you go back to work and um <clears throat> yeah, whatever works. I mean, I, I know writers who can just like sit there and just like lose everything and the cats walking over their heads and they're just in it. But I, and also like I, you know, the older I get, part of my process is to be nonlinear, you know, and, and to take a walk and to be all over the place. Sometimes ideas come from left of center and you have to be, you have to be okay with that, you know? Um, and I used to think that writing was just sitting and staring at a keyboard. And that's not really the case. The hard work sometimes comes when you're not thinking about it. You know, I mean, Steve Jobs famously loved to take walks whenever he had mm -hmm. some major issue that he had. He, Let's go take a walk, you know. And so there's something to that. You get the blood pumping, you get the brain going, um, change the scenery. Well, do you ever reflect that maybe as profound and prolific as a director as you are do you ever think maybe you weren't put on this planet to be a writer uh i i still don't know what i want to do to be honest i mean i you know i kind of i couldn't imagine i guess the uh, unfortunately you know for me it was like i couldn't imagine doing anything else you know and i love the i love the socialness of of making films and tv um i'm a good writer I'm pretty decent. I wouldn't say that I'm Aaron Sorkin, but I'm, I am really good at it. And, but it's really hard for me. Um, but I, that being said, when I signed with CAA and I suddenly thought like, wow, I'm at one of the biggest agencies in the world. And, you know, I've made a commercially hit, successful movie. I thought all these amazing scripts would come my way, but the truth is it's, it's really, really hard to write a really good script, you know, Everything's been done, particularly in the horror genre and the, you know, and in the movies I make, there's just, you know, there's a hundred new specs going out a day, it seems like. And the horror crowd has seen everything, you know. And so it's like, what is that fresh? That's why when a movie like Jordan Peele's Get Out comes along, it just feels like a, a revelation because it's such a new idea through a, a unique storyteller's lens, you know? And so we're always searching for that freshness. So that gets me back to shit. I got to write my own stuff because, you know, as a director, you want to be in love with the material. And uh, a lot of times because I am a writer, it's the bar is much higher versus if you were just a director reading scripts and you don't have that other skill set, it's a lot easier to kind of attach yourself to something um because you just you don't have the option you know <clears throat> for sure i mean i've just had this revelation myself like i just hate sitting down and like i wrote the last <laughs> well dude so i'll send you our movie and you'll see it and you're gonna be like dude this dude isn't a kick-ass producer but he has no clue what he's doing writing a script and i just sometimes think adhd does not lend itself to just comprehensive sit-down work and you kind of got to use your superpowers in other ways yeah look I, I think part of the journey we all have to take is you know there's the dream of what you think the ego tells you oh I want to be this I want to be a famous actor well if you're self-conscious and you're not a great line reader and you have to be honest with 
what your skill set is. Look, that's not to say you shouldn't try these things. You shouldn't try to write it if that's what you aspire to do. But at a certain point in your journey, you have to be honest with like what your skill set is. And I tell young directors all the time, like, you know, if you're not a writer, if you genuinely, if you just, and you have to be super critical of your shit, right? Like you have to be hard on yourself because the pressure and the, the, the competition is so great. So if you try a couple of scripts and you get them read by people that are really smart and you, and, and you see that it, eh, it's not really working, you know, the script didn't make sense. The script didn't flow. Uh, you know, this script didn't really have anything to say, well then shift gears, you know, and, 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 you know, some people are, are born to be producers. They're, they're personable, they're, you know, they're problem solvers. Cause like a producer has to be so even keeled and like, you know, there's multiple fires going every day, you know, and I'm a very emotional person. I, you know, I feel things deeply. If somebody's having a bad day, I'm going to sense it and want to fix it. And so I would, I'm not a great, I wouldn't be a great person that would have to kind of you know, I get to be a little bit more artistic as the director, a little more emotional, whereas a producer tends to have to be Vulcan, you know, and writers tend to be, there's two types of writers. There's the insular writer who really likes to be alone and, and um, go inward. And then there's the extrovert who, who is really, it seems like there's two diametric opposite versions of writers, you know, and um, but the physical, uh, I, I, I started working with a writing partner and that, that made a big difference because it wasn't so lonely and, uh, we were held accountable to each other. Um, and, you know, you could just riff a lot of the work we do in the early parts of, uh, writing something is just sitting in my writing partner's backyard and just talking story, you know, pitching it to each other, trying to make it make sense just from a fireside camp story. You know, if you can pitch it verbally in a very simple way, then you know you have something. Because movies, movies have to be simple. You know, they they can't be dumb, but they have to be simple. Because uh, you're, you know, particularly a theatrical movie, you're you're making it some a piece of commercial product that has to play, you know, on the coasts, but also deep in Arkansas or wherever you know this multiplex is going to show it. So it's it's really tricky. Now, I don't know if I'm answering your question. I'm rambling a little. Well, yeah, no, I appreciate it. I actually do know where your brain's going. And before we move on, can you just give a quick synopsis of who you are and what you do for anyone that's going to tune into this? Yeah, sure. Uh, well, I'm Adam Robitel. I I'm a writer and a director. I made a a little found footage horror film called The Taking of Deborah Logan uh, in 2015, and um, it was a movie about a woman who has Alzheimer's disease and a medical crew that moves in with her to progress her illness and things start to happen. And we quickly realize there's something far more malevolent going on. And uh, that movie was dumped unceremoniously to Netflix in 2015. It was like the beginning of like the Netflix boom. And uh, over that, I, I was devastated because I'd worked for two years on this movie and it was just like, that's it. No PR, no, no marketing. And over that Halloween weekend, a million people shared the movie on, on Twitter and it had this groundswell, this little sort of like indie gem and it kind of put me on the map. Uh, and from there, uh, a friend, James, James Wan had seen it and really loved it and tweeted about it, which was amazing, you know, and that kind of opened the door to get me in on the short list for Insidious, uh, the fourth Insidious movie at Blumhouse. Um, and I was, I remember I was so broke. I went into debt making my first movie and I went into Blumhouse with like the last two grand I had in my bank account. I did all of these cool kind of animated storyboards and I did a beautiful lookbook that took me a month to do. And I just, I, I said, if I'm going to, if I'm going up for this, I'm going to swing for the fences. And you know, I got the job and uh, that, that was like such a huge change in my life because, you know, I'm inheriting what is essentially a massive franchise. Um, and so for me, and I, I, I equate directing an insidious movie to like directing a TV series where I'm not coming in and reinventing the world. I'm sort of like a steward of like a world that's already established. Um, and it was great. I mean, I, I learned so much from Lee Wanell who wrote it and, you know, he wrote Saw and, you know, and, and he was an actor in the movie. And so it was like my first experience with uh, a studio film. 
Um, and then from there, while well, we were in post on Insidious, uh, Neil Moritz, who's producer of um, Fast and the Furious original film, they had this little idea for an escape room movie. And uh, my agents had slipped me the script. And I said, there's, a, I, I didn't even know what an escape room was. I literally, I, I went out quickly and did like 10 of them in LA because they were super popular at the time. And I realized like, wow, this could be a really visual movie. And the, the producer said, we have one caveat. We don't want to make a rated R gory movie. We want to make it a PG-13 movie that relies on suspense and not shock. And I was like, okay, that's interesting. And at the time, James Wan was making all of these jumpery kind of like, you know, ghost in the house movies. And so Escape Room became an opportunity to do a movie that was different, that was more about the Hitchcockian sort of suspense. And, 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 and that was amazing. I went to South Africa and, uh, you know, we built all these gorgeous elaborate rooms and yeah, it was a little $10 million movie, but it made, I don't know, 158 million worldwide. And so it was like, wow, you know, I was able to go and, and make this little commercial hit. So um, so yeah, that's where I'm at. And then now I'm, I'm working on a series, uh, with Netflix and Darren Aronofsky, uh, and we're, we've submitted all the scripts and we're just waiting to see if it's greenlit or not. Adam, you did not tell everyone where you were from. Oh uh, yeah. Well, I'm originally from Boston. Uh, well, Revere, Sevilla, girls with big hair. Uh, I'm from Revere, Massachusetts, New England. Uh, but I've been I've been out here for a long time. I, I'll start talking normally, you know. But um, but I've been on the West Coast for twenty years, so you know I feel like I feel like California is home now. I, I remember my guidance counselor at high school was like, "California, what do you want to go that far for?" Like, you know, I'm like, "You're my guidance counselor. Aren't you supposed to like, you know, inspire me, Mister Hooten?" You know. But uh, <laughs> so was it a. Was it hard for you to imagine uh, a life in California when you were growing up here? No. It was always no, I, I, Well, I'll tell you, dude, I, I always fantasized about California. I mean, I always saw the palm trees and, you know, the beautiful people. And like, I, California was always like this mythic place. And then, of course, you go through your, your Jim Morrison phase, you know, and you're, you know, you listen to the doors and you're like, I, I, you know, Hotel California. You just, it, it has this mythic thing to you. And then, I remember I went to UMass Amherst with my friends from Revere High, and I come home and I got the pamphlet, and I'm like, "Grand, grand, grandma, grandmother was really close to me. I want to go to UMass Amherst." And she give me that. She pulled the pamphlet and ripped it in front of me. You know, and she's like, "You're not going to UMass. You'll end up on drugs." I still ended up doing drugs, but it was in USC instead. Um, but uh, no, man, I, I always, I always felt like I was a fish out of water you know, in New England. And I just, it's something about the weather. And, you know, like I, I was telling you, I'm a big naturalist. I love going outdoors and stuff. So it was, it was pretty easy. But then when I went to USC and I, I luckily got into USC, which I didn't even, I didn't even know that it would had a great film school, to be honest. I just saw palm trees in a really cool campus. And when I got there, I remember like two weeks of just drinking and going to like the frat parties. And, and then I woke up in my bed in my dorm room and I'm like, holy shit, I'm, I'm living here now, like I'm not leaving, you know? And so that started the journey. And then USC had the one of the best film schools in the world. You know, I'm going to class in the Steven Spielberg soundstage and the George Lucas building. And, you know, and it was like, wow, this is a business. Like making film is actually a business. <clears throat> and that, that started the journey. Yeah, I, I felt the first time I went to LA, it was the first time I actually felt like in the game, like, I'd never been exposed to other people trying to make stuff that's big and use visual effects and sell movies. And so out there, I just, I think there's something to be said about actually being in the environment and then figuring it out while you're out there. But initially you wanted to act, right? Yeah. I mean, look, I, I, I think I just wanted to be, I, look, I was funny in class and I was popular and I thought, you know, Oh, you know, let, I want to be famous. Like I mean, being celebrity seems cool. Like you get free swag and, you know, but I wasn't serious and I wasn't committed to studying and I did a lot of partying and I was just a mess in my twenties. And, and I was quite self-conscious on stage and I did a little bit and I was, you know, I was passable, but it was not, I, when I saw an actor and this is getting back to what I was saying to you earlier, 
about being honest with your skill set and your, you know, there, you have your passion and you have your ego telling you I should be this. And then you're just like, okay, well, can I do this? And I saw some actors who were really good. And I was like, wow, I can't, I can't do what that person does. So why am I even going to try? And it wasn't a defeatist kind of thing. It was more just like stepping back and going, okay, you know, what else can I do? And now I love the, the filmmaking process is much more, it, look, it's really long. They're marathons, you know, and by the time you get into post on a movie, a studio movie, it's like a year. And then visual effects just are so tedious, but it's fun. And you're creating an entire world and every little decision <clears throat> from the wardrobe to the props to the aesthetic is all part of my brain. And so I find that really re rewarding. The most rewarding is working with a great crew. You know, you, you, you just create this family. I've shot in South Africa, I've shot in Budapest, um, and you instantly, you're working with these incredible technicians around the world. And it, it, it swells my heart to see, and I grew up in a working class and my dad was a milk truck driver. And I just love my crew, you know what I mean? They, they work so hard. And I'm, I'm the guy going over to helping picking up lights and stuff like that. And I never have ego. I don't think, oh, because I'm the director, I can yell at somebody. I can do this. I can do that. And I just treat them with respect. And so it, it, that's my the favorite part of it. And I look, there's dark days on set. There are things that have happened. I was going to say, sorry to cut you off. There, there must be days where you do have to act as an authoritarian, though. Yeah, look, I mean, you, you always have to have confidence and, and know what the game plan is. Um, and there are times where there's just certain things you can't control. There's going to be people with attitudes and things that just are outside of your, so you have to be really Zen about it. And, um, but I never once, I mean, never yell, you know, safety's prime. I had a, a guy fall through a roof on a escape room. And I remember coming around the corner. It was a very complicated set with a moving wall that was on a hydraulic. And I just remember hearing this crash. And I was the first one up from Video Village and ran around. And one of my technicians had broken his, you know, his arm. And he was in a place where he shouldn't have been. And I shut down set for a couple of hours. I was very upset. Um, and, uh, you know, we did a big safety thing. And uh, so, so you know, you, you have the shoulder, you have the, the weight of people's livelihoods you have the weight of the studio you know the money there's a lot of pressure and you know <clears throat> and i don't know how i did it to be honest because i you know i'm i i'm not an anxious I, I do have anxiety issues i'll be honest but when i go into making the movie i go into this fight or flight mode um where i'm in extreme kind of like war mode for months 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 at a time and only once I deliver something, then I start to get into trouble and I, all the shit comes up and, you know, uh, because I've been in that trench for so long. What do you, <laughs> I don't what do you well, mean? I don't do well with uh, free time, to be honest. I mean, you know, right now I'm in between on things and like, that's when you get I, uh, somebody like me who has to be chewing on something mentally all the time. <laughs> when I'm stuck on my own feelings, that's when it gets dangerous. I'm actually with you on that. What is your lineage? What is my lineage? How do you mean? Like, where is your family from originally? Uh, French, Canada, Norway, Italy. Um, you know, uh, they all kind of, yeah, from Quebec and then down, you know, um, uh, and then Italy, you know. So I'm French, French, Italian, Scottish, Norwegian, and Irish. Okay. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay, there it is. I was going to say, you do have a little bit of that Irish mania that I got. That's what yeah. I'm attributing to some of the, I'm the same way. Like life's good when you got something to work on, but when you don't, that's when you start freaking out. Right. Yeah. And look, Boston, Boston, I think, you know, getting back to our roots, like uh, there's a, there's a reason Boston, it's a very cinematic city. It's the, it's the, it's the birthplace of America. There's a lot of history, but it's also a lot of writers, a lot of, a lot of smart people, a lot of colleges. So I think there's a lot of Bostonians in LA you know, it, it's a city that sort of breeds that artistic, um, you know, aspirational kind of thing. And I didn't really appreciate it until I left. And now when I go back, I'm like, I did this awesome, like it was a beautiful summer day and I did the Freedom Trail again. And just, it was just like just a perfect day in Boston. Um, and, uh, you know, the whole new, uh, what is that? The, the, the water, the marina, not the marina, the, um, the seaport 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 yeah and it's just like wow you know I, I just i have a new appreciation for a city that i didn't really 
understand in, in high school? Yeah, surprisingly, I had um, I had Lee Eisenberg on the podcast. I don't know if you know his work. So he did like the We Crash and used to be an, a writer and director on The Office. Awesome. And, and he said like there were upwards of 12 people working on The Office from Boston. Just wow. coincidentally. I believe, I believe it. Nuts. Now, no. now let's just peel it back a little bit. So you're out in L.A. What prompts you to make the first movie and how do you get the bread to go do it? Uh, I, I was, um, I had written a, well, I, I, I should say I, I, I've written, I wrote two scripts that were kind of crap and, and yeah, I shouldn't say crap. One was like a ripoff of seven, you know, and I was just trying to learn how to finish a script really for a couple of years. Um, and I, I, um, and then I wrote a script called The Bloody Benders, which was based on a true story. And Guillermo del Toro optioned it. Um, and uh, I was going to direct it after Pacific Rim. And I was like, holy shit, like GDT is going to do my movie. So every six six months, I would email him, dear Mr. del Toro, you know, like just checking in, you know. And, and, um, and two years went by. And I thought like suddenly like mana from heaven, like all these opportunities were to come. I'm, I've written a del Toro movie and, and it wasn't the case. Like, you know, and so... And then I thought, oh shit, I'm, I'm waiting here. I'm waiting. I, I might as well try to write something small that I can go get made. I, I didn't wake up and I, I never felt like I wanted to be a director. I don't even like telling people what to do. Like if you wanted to have lunch, I'd be like, dude, where do you want to meet? Like, I, you know, I'm not one of those people who's hyper controlling the way a lot of directors are. Um, but my thought process was, all right, let me make a, let me write something really small. And at the time, found footage movies were pretty successful. There was a movie called Devil Inside, which was terrible, but it made like a close to a hundred million off of like a, you know, a hundred thousand dollar budget. So that was my thinking. And I always, Blair Witch, of course, was the gold standard. <laughs> and I was, and I thought, and I, and I, I also had an, ex, I had some experience doing documentaries and I was an editor so Thomas stuff how to edit. And so I, I figured if I made a movie that was found footage, there'd be more freedom to, to do it more like a documentary. And so that was, that was my mindset. And then um, at the time, I, you know, I, I knew Brian Singer, who, as everybody knows, is persona you know, non gratis right now. But he was, he was a really smart guy and really a hypochondriac. Uh, he was making, uh, it was, I had worked with him on Superman Returns, uh, making uh, documentaries, uh, you know, on Superman Returns in Sydney, Australia, and was doing all these, I did, a, I did 25 or 30 of these mini documentaries, like Clark Kent as he's flying and Superman, like the cape and all this stuff. So I was really good with documentary filmmaking. And I showed him a clip of a woman an advanced stage. She had she had middle. She had um, early onset Alzheimer's, and this was like a sixty minutes episode. And she she was talking about losing her mind and writing mir notes on mirrors. And she was in a, you know and, and it was and then it cuts to her a year later, and she, her skin is white. She doesn't recognize her husband, her daughter. She's in an adult high chair. And so I I just said I want to make a, a possession movie about Alzheimer's disease. And I can see his mind going. Oh, that's really scary. And so I, I wrote I wrote the script with my writing partner at Brian's company at the time, um, and we wrote it and we thought, oh, you know, we're done. We we did it at first. We thought we could do like a fifty page, like just an outline, and then they're like, no, you got to write a script. And so we wrote like for two years. We wrote the script. I mean, it took us two years, multiple developments, and then I went out and and raised um, the money um, with a friend, Krista Campbell, who does a lot of movies with Millennium at the time. And, you know, every producer in town told me I needed two and a half million dollars to make this movie, to do it right. And uh, so I was listening to that for quite a while. And then finally, a producer said, look, I'll, I get you a million. You know, that's the best you're going to get. And I I was really torn because I thought, oh, my vision and all this. But I, at the end of the day, you know, you can make it work, you know, if, if you're if you have to. And uh yeah, dude, we went to North Carolina, shot it for 20 days. I found this amazing actress, um, Jill Larson, and uh, Ann Ramsey played the mom and daughter. And it was just an amazing experience because you could feel the crew, the, these women, these incredible actors were doing these things. I remember like 
Jill Larson is like writhing in bed in this old hospital in North Carolina. And my big, strong, like sound design, sound mixer guy, he's shaking. I remember his boom pole, like just like because of the, sh the performances she was bringing was so scary. And you could just feel it with the crew. Like there was, we were doing something kind of cool. Um, and, you know, I, I'm still so proud of that movie. And, and what's, what's really tough though, you know, anecdotally is like we finished the film and um, we had one test screening and the test screening was terrible. It, we didn't, we didn't have a finished, uh, there's a famous shot in Deborah Logan where uh, the, girl, the, the old lady's mouth unhinges like a snake and swallows this little girl's head and it's terrifying. But we didn't have that shot in this test screening. The, mov the movie wasn't really finished. And so what happens as a director is you do these test screenings, you get a number, and then your number basically dictates the fate of your movie, right? And so you come in and I got like a, a shitty, shitty score. It was like a 39. Nobody really got it. You know, and they, they bring in this like giant book of how your movie's not going to perform uh, with any demographic. And I felt like a total failure. You know what I mean? I, I felt like I, oh, I guess I got to figure out something else because directing is not going to work, you know? Um, and that's why with, when Netflix picked it up and it became this like cult phenomenon and now it, now it, it hits top 10 lists all the time. It's considered one of the scariest movies. And, and um, so I'm, I'm really proud that with no marketing might, people discovered it. In some ways, it's actually more vindicating. <clears throat> um, so yeah, that, and you know, I, I think anybody could raise, you know, 500 grand, you know, a million dollars for a film, you know, if, if they, if they get out there and they stomp hard enough, uh, it's the road is narrower now, but I think it still can be done, but it all starts with a great script, you know, and that's the hard part is finding that great material. Right now, let's say you have a, a script ready to go. So this is how I raise money for my movie. I went into Boston, I went door to door and I pitched to Boston-based brands for product placement within the movie. So we funded all the money from Boston-based companies. And then you can see like the most cheesy, almost like transformers, like Greg O'Brien CPA, Boston Empire, <laughs> like, like right in your face. And um, so I had never heard of such an apparatus of someone going out and just finding someone to cut them a $500,000 check. So let's say you're back before the Deborah Logan days right now. How would you go and snag money for a script? It's really tough. I mean, I, I, I'm a believer in the network of it all. I think, I think it's hard. I couldn't imagine how you did it. I think the way you did it, in Boston makes a lot of sense, but I, I think you need to get to LA and you need to start making the connections. What I, what I found was uh, the equity investors, like these guys, these rich dentists and business people who just want to invest in movies. That's a small list and they all know each other in town here in LA. Um, and so um, you go to, you know, somebody who knows how to get into that circle. And if, when I was financing Deborah Logan, there was still this idea of like pre-sales, which is like this idea of like, you could sell it to the UK, you could sell it to Germany for X amount of money. And so would, they would back into a number based on like what these pre-sales were internationally. Um, but to answer your question now, I don't, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know how I would go about it. I, I, it's, the industry has changed so much. I think, I think certainly I would go to the streamers now, you know, because there's such a glut of streamers um, but again, that starts with the chicken or the egg of the relationships. So like even going back further to my, the thing that put me on the map, the script, right? Like I had a relationship with a friend, Alex, who was, a, who was an executive at um, Legendary. And then he slipped it to, once he read it, like I, and I begged him. And I, by the way, I, I always say to writers, you get that one shot of that person, you know, you better have the script better be good. Because if you screw up and you send some piece of crap that you farted out in three weeks, you burn that bridge. See, you know, so you wait until you say, so I sent it to Alex. He sent it to a producer named Don Murphy. And then Don Murphy sent it to Guillermo del Toro. So what I'm getting at here is, is um, you need these, in, you need these relationships, right? And I have every day, you know, and not you withstanding, but I have every day people reach out and they say, I have a script I want you to read or, you know, and it's like, I, I'm right now I'm too busy because I, you know, and I used to try to answer everybody. And, um, 
But if you get to LA, like that's the thing, you either have to go to New York City or LA, you got to go to events, you got to start meeting people, and you got to start making inroads. And then once you have the script, you got to get it to somebody who can get it to somebody, you know what I mean? That, that's the only way to do it is with a personal relationship. Um, and the, 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 the internet is tough because, you know, it, there's just so many people constantly hitting people like myself up who are already kind of on the road. It, it's hard to, there becomes, it becomes all becomes background noise versus if I had met you at a, an event and we commiserated, it's much easier for me to then go, okay, I'll take a, I'll take a chance and I'll read one script I'll, and I'll read the first 10 pages. And if there are misspellings and grammatically incorrect, or I don't know what the movie's about after 10 pages, I shut it, you know, because this person didn't do the homework, didn't study the craft, didn't know what makes a good screenplay, you know, didn't know how to root me with the, the, the protagonist. Um, and so it essentially wasted my time, you know, um, but in terms of like the, 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 the equity investors, like I, you know, if you're in a, if you're in a town like Boston, and, you know, uh, it depends on the project. Like if you know enough, you know, there's, a, we always say it's, it's not the super wealthy people who invest in movies because they usually know better. Uh, it's usually those mid-level wealthy people that, that because m- let me be clear, like most movies do not make money. You know, it is not a good business venture. I, I hate Absolutely to say. not. Absolutely you know? not. And, and, you know, and, and these people, these high net worth people, they're going to have a, a contingent of, you know, um, finance people who tell them what decisions to make. But the mid-level people, the, the rich dentists and the entrepreneurs who want to be around the, the movie business, who want to kind of just do it as a, as a lark, those are the kinds of people you want to kind of go to and sell them on the passion of the idea. You know, when I, when I did, the, when I did uh, the taking of Deborah Logan, I had comps, right? I had, I had five different paranormal activity, devil inside. I, and then I went down in, analytically and I showed, you know, the return on investment for one of these movies, if it goes through the roof is astronomical. Um, and so I made it really compelling, right? If, if I, if I want to go make a movie about Gus the fisherman, because my dad was a fisherman and he loved, you know, largemouth bass, like, great, that's your passion project. But I don't know how that's compelling to somebody who's going to write a check for you, you know? So you have to do your homework and really, as a, as a filmmaker, as a producer, really understand, like, is it commercial? You know, I have friends who write crazy, not commercial stuff. They love it. Biblical, gay, you know, romance scripts. And I'm like, well, that's great. You wrote that. It's a nice piece of writing, but nobody wants to see that. You know what I mean? So, so you have to be mindful of like, you know, what is the audience, who is the audience for that? And, you know, look, I mean, now with the, with the internet and with, with streamers, like you can be a little more niche, but when you're starting out, you have to, you have to come in it with, I really believe a commercial sense of, of like what's going to sell. (laughs) Dude, one thing that's really hard and I'm very grateful for it is I had probably, so this is my second film. I had probably already shot about 50 to 60 YouTube videos of sketches so I could learn how to edit, et cetera. Wow. It, it's, right. the, it's the ability that you can't just, the, the barrier to entry to make a movie is so high because it's so expensive. And so it's yeah. hard to be like, it's hard for some kid to just come in and be like, dude, I really want to shoot a movie because I want to learn how to do it. And I've never done it before. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. The one thing I'd say to that is an antidote and I agree with you, but, but it is so true now. Like uh, my buddy, Michael Chavez, right. He, he did um, uh, a little, he, he came from commercials. So I shouldn't say he, he's not a great example. He's a really talented guy, but he did a short film that then James Wan saw, but David Sandberg, for example, he did a three minute short for lights out. It was a girl walking into a room hitting a light switch and then the wraith, the entity, you know, standing there in the dark. And then she shuts the light switch off. The thing goes away. And it's just a great, simple two minute thing. And so look for the horror genre, you can make something with your iPhone and your girlfriend's apartment. That could be really, really scary, you know, and, and that gets noticed, you know what I mean? And as a director, like, I think you can do stuff for five grand, you know, pulling friends together. You know, if you have a troop of actors from Emerson or something, and you can do something that gets you noticed as a as a filmmaker, 
Um, and you know, that might not get you money for your first movie, but it might get you noticed and get you an assignment as a director, you know? Um, so I think that's, that's the play and look, good on you for making content. Cause that's how you do it, you know, and that work is going to lead to other work, you know, and again, it's, it, it, uh, the the best case scenario is you could make a little short scene of something like swingers is another great example of like just a bunch of dudes just going on a you know just this 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 comedy about friends and relationships and going to vegas and and i mean he made that favreau made that for nothing you know um and it put him on the map but he was in la he was a writer he was an actor he was around he had young vince vaughn get all these actors around him. So he was in the right time, right place with the right voice and was able to put that, that movie together. <clears throat> here's, here's a question for you. So you make Deborah Logan in 2015, right? Yeah. Or it comes out in 2015. And then when, what year is insidious? Uh, I think it was 2017. So how are you staying afloat financially during this time? Uh, it was really tough. It was really, really tough. I did a lot of editing stuff. I mean, I did a lot of behind the scenes editing. You know, there were still DVD kits then and like DVD extras, you know, in the, in the late 2000s, from 2010 to 2000, it was like this amazing DVD business where a lot of people like me, like this guy, David Pryor, who just did this movie, The, the, um, the Empty Man. You know, he would, he, he, we would do, like I did uh, just a bunch of DVD uh, com- EPK stuff, you know, and when I would get to be on set you know, I did a thing for Dream Girls and um, uh, these different movies. And so I would just edit, you know, I did, I edited a, a meth, uh, anti-meth, you know, documentary and the editing paid pretty well, you know, at the time. Um, and I would get those like on the internet and I would just apply and um, would cut them in my living room. See, that's so crazy. Like y- y- here you are, your movies in post-production, it's on its way to being a huge hit and you're still applying for jobs online. It's wild. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the, that's always the case, you know, and uh, you know, and then when you get your first real studio job, you get into the DGA, but of course, you know, you don't have much leverage. You don't really have much leverage until you've had a commercial hit. Like when I, when escape room was a hit, then I had leverage over the studio, you know? And, but before that, it's like, I'm a dime a dozen really to them. <clears throat> um, so, so you must yeah, have been I, pumped. Sorry to cut you off. You must've been uh, pumped to, can, I'm familiar with it, but I think people listening to this won't be. Can you explain how the Blumhouse model works? And actually, you're going to make it sound a lot more clear than I will. But in my understanding, they don't pay directors very much, but they're like, hey, we'll finance your idea. We're going to shoot like six of these a year, and we know one of them is going to take off, so we're going to get our money back for the other five. Is that right? I mean, that's pretty, pretty right. They've really diversified now. They're doing, Jason's doing a lot of interesting things in TV. He does do some bigger budget stuff. I mean, I think he, it, it is still the kind of like micro budget sub five million dollar, um, y- you know, idea. And yeah, the idea is to do high concept ideas, you know, that are, that are really price, price contained. Cause don't forget, you know, even insidious, you know, the first Insidious they made for a million dollars, James Wan and Lee, they made this little spooker movie, just down and dirty. <clears throat> and then it was a success. And then I think they immediately greenlit the second movie and they gave them like three or four, maybe five. Um, but even after the huge success of that and then the third, they still kept the budget tight. And so, yeah, they, they'll, they'll you know, directors like Scott Derrickson, these, these big name directors in the genre space, they'll say, hey, come to Blumhouse, you know, we'll give you actual participation in the movie. Like for Escape Room, they gave me, you know, Sony gave me net profit, which means nothing, right? Because like, oh you never, God. you know, these movies are still in the black. They're still in the red. They, they still claim that they are not successful financially. I still get the accountancy uh, papers, you know, because like each movie, so each, for a movie to go theatrical now, you have to spend a minimum, minimum $35 million on, on just on advertising. So, you know, you're looking at a recoupment. If, even if, if, you're, if, you're, if your movie costs $5 million, you need to recoup $40 million just to start, you know, breaking even, you know, with a theatrical movie. So the, the bar is high. <clears throat> you know, I mean, Michael Bay just came out with a movie that did like eight over the weekend. Ambulance. And, 
you know, yeah. And you get that first weekend opportunity and then it just starts to drop and drop and drop. So if you don't open at a significant number, you're screwed. Um, so yeah, but J that's Jason's model and, you know, Blumhouse, they historically have been really hands-off. I think with some of the bigger IP projects like Halloween and stuff, they're going to be much more involved <clears throat> creatively. Um, but that's what the, that, that's their, their thing is to say to filmmakers, Hey, you've been through the studio system. They meddle, you know, they get in, uh, they get in your shorts, you know, they're constantly kind of like, you know, buzzing in your ear. So we're going to say like, you guys, you can have creative control for the most part. And, um, and the only caveat is you're not going to get a huge upfront fee. Um, and, you know, that's enticing to a lot of people. They're hard, you know, they're really hard. I mean, you're not going to get, you're going to get 25 days. If you're lucky, maybe 30, you know, time is money, you know, escape room. I had 55 days in South Africa, which was like a huge luxury. And the second one, I think I had 60 days. And so you get to do, you just get to do more elaborate stuff. The more time you have, you know, <coughs> excuse me, you know, I, look, I mean, I, you know, I, I had 20 days of my first movie to direct it. And then with this, with Insidious, I had 30 days. And I was like, Oh my God, I'm like James Cameron. Like I have all this time. And I just remember like, there's a one scene where Lynn Shea's character, she comes down and touches a doorknob and then she gets thrown back. Right. And like, Oh, that'll be quick. We'll do a quick stunt. We'll be done. Bang. And then we'll be on the rest of our day. That took half a day to do, you know, that one idea. And, you know, so I think the big thing that the learning curve as a director is you, you think it's going to take, you always have to plan. It's going to take at least twice as long as you think it's going to be. I remember writing all my shot lists and then my big strapping AD came in and he was just like, let me see that. And he just like crossed out like half my shots. He's like, you know, listen, we don't kid. have time for those setups. Yeah. We don't have the time, you know? And so that's the hard part, you know? Um, and, uh, so so that's the Blumhouse model you know and a lot of people and and I think Jason you know because of his success for better or worse you know all the studios now are they won't make they don't want to make genre movies for uh, for over 10 million dollars I have this awesome awesome cannibal witch movie uh that is super fun with Stoney and with Sam Raimi and I need like 18 million dollars i need to be you know that's not a lot more than 10 but i i need that to build these really cool sets and i'm struggling right now because nobody wants to make a genre movie over over 10 million because of jason you know because of the success jason's had so um it's it's tricky so how how does the business of your film being on Netflix work? Is it similar to an artist like on Spotify, you get a percentage of streams or? It really depends. I mean, back in the day, it was like just a buyout fee. Like I think, I, you know, my first film, I think it was like a $50,000, $50, like it was just ridiculously low. And no, you don't get to participate. And that's going to be the next big, particularly on the series side, on the TV side is, you know, if I'm Scott Frank and I make this this uh, this little chess movie, you, you know, uh, this little chess series, what was that? Um, the Queen's Gambit. And suddenly, you know, uh, 500 million people have watched it or however many, you know, some astronomical number, you know, the director, the, the content creator should be able to participate in that, right? I mean, it's like, you know, and that's what Jason says, like, you know, Jordan Peele makes Get Out. It goes on to make $300 million worldwide. Jordan Peele gets a nice, big, fat check. And guess what? He should for, you know, and so, but with Netflix, the big fight's going to be for them to be transparent with the eyeballs. Like how many people are watching these things? They don't, you know, it doesn't behoove them to, 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 to give that information out right now because, the mystery is more beneficial to them, right? I mean, they can mm -hmm. say something was hugely successful, but then we don't get to see all the turds that Stats, nobody watched, yeah. you know? So that's going to be the best All we fight. see is essentially like top 10 on Netflix today. That's all we really know. That's all we really know. And, you know, and that that's going to be the fight, you know? And they have a lot of competition now. They were the first adopter, but... Um, you know, now with Paramount Plus and with Disney coming in and just, I mean, and Apple just like spending like drunken sailors, like it's, it's going to be really interesting, you know? And um, so, yeah, it's a good time to be trying to sell content. It's not a great time to get super rich. Like that, you know, if you made a show 
15 years ago that went into syndication, you know, if you made, if you're Brian who made House MD, he directed the pilot of House and, you know, and then it goes on to become the most successful syndicated show. In the, you know, you, that's 40, $50 million worth of, of residuals you're getting. Crazy money. That, so, so that paradigm is gone now. That being said, I can go tomorrow and pitch to 10 different buyers about my new, whatever new series I'm, I'm, I'm coming up with. So, you know, the, there's a lot more mouths that are hungry. You're just not getting those huge deals that you were getting, you know, 20 years ago. So when are you going to direct the sequel to 127 Hours, given, <laughs> given your affection for the Canyons? Oh, is, man. That, is that on your mind at all? Like, like maybe some sort of outdoorsy movie, some exploring yeah, movie? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, I, I, uh, I'll tell you another time, but I was airlifted off a, off a hike once, and I definitely saw images. <laughs> I saw images. What of happened? James. Dude, it was just stupid. I went up Sandstone Peak in Santa Monica, the mountains, and went late in the day, and uh, I lost the trail. And it was a simple trail, and I, I, it was very simple, and I was an idiot. And I was, it was late. It was like 5.30, and I remember just like bush. I saw a trail on the ridge, that, and so I started climbing through, through thorns and brush, and I finally got up there, and it's like, oh, shit, this is not the trail. And I had no service. So I, I ended up climbing on this rock wall formation and now I can hear coyotes and I'm seeing James Franco's severed arm in my head. And uh, I dialed 911 and I got the Ventura County Sheriff's Department and they were like, uh, you're not going to get out of there tonight. Hold on. And they, they've sent in a Ventura County sent in a helicopter oh and God. literally, and the dude, then they're flying past me and they can't see me. And with my last bar on my phone, I sent them an image of my coordinates. And then so I jump in the helicopter. I wanted to kiss the guy. I was so thankful. And, <laughs> and they said, I said, do I have to pay for this? And they said, the first time's free. The second time you have to pay. You know? um, but, but yeah, I mean, I, wilderness horror, definitely. I have a couple ideas. My series is definitely has a lot of wilderness elements because it's set in Colorado in the summer in the mountains. So there's a lot of that, a lot of manhunts and really scary stuff happening in the woods. So hopefully I get to make that, you know dude so were you injured on top of this mountain or were you just nervous that you i was just really yeah i was scratched up and stuff i mean I, you know look i like hiking alone but it is dangerous and you know and, and you, you have to be careful and you know i i got i got the whitney lottery which is the highest mountain in california for my birthday in may and i'm like ah, oh, i don't know i'd have to get it like 2 a.m and i i certainly shouldn't go alone but um but then I saw this this uh, this gal, you know, posted. She 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 just summited it like two days ago, you know, with this YouTube. And I'm like, well, if she can do it, you know. Um, but you nature can turn on a dime, man. And you know, um, there's a great little outdoors backcountry. It was a little horror film. If anybody's looking for something kind of creepy uh, about a couple that goes out camping, and it's a it's a really good little indie movie. I think uh, the director made it for quite a price, you know, just sort of down and dirty. It's a great little wilderness horror movie. Have you uh, put any thought into maybe climbing a bigger peak, like in the Himalayas or Kilimanjaro? Uh, you know, they're all on the list. I mean, if I do Whitney eventually, that's that's quite significant, it's 14,000 feet. I mean, Kilimanjaro certainly would be really cool just to, just to have done it. Um, I'm not somebody who's going to end up getting into technical climbs because I just am not, uh, you know, I, the, so we'll, we'll see. I mean, I, you know, if I do Whitney, I don't, you know, not, everything else is going to pale in comparison to that. Uh, at least I, the have lower to, I had to Google Whitney because you were telling me about this on the phone. It's the first time. I, yeah. Oh, is it Whitney portal? Whitney portals where you start. Yeah. Okay. So there's a race, an ultra marathon. I don't know if you ever heard about it, called the Badwater 135. Is this ring a bell? Yeah. 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 So you so they end, they start in the base of Death Valley. They start in the base end. of Death Valley. Yeah, yeah. From the lowest point to the highest point. Yeah. Yeah. So That's I had the um, I've had the the race director on the podcast, Chris Cosman. And he's wow. a, he, he's a real demon. He's a real psycho. Wow. That's extreme. I mean, that's you know, good on you if you can do that. That's kind of like as I was saying, like if I was to graduate in the ultra world. 
there are like four big races I would do. It'd either be Badwater 135 or then Leadville 100. I don't know if you've heard of that. It's kind of near some of the climbs you did in Colorado. What's the, what's the most distance you've run? 100. Wow, dude. And what is that? What do you do? Like a marathon a day? Like, how do you, how do you sustain yourself? Like those Irish demons, brother. <laughs> no, uh, it, it was 31 hours. So, and, and listen, I've had about now six or seven pretty premier ultra runners on the podcast. These guys could slash in half my time. Most of them wow like like i'm on mile 60 and the first place guy passed me when i was doing my 100 just in total demon mode just like a fucking great white shark out there still in the night and he's just a gazelle through the desert do you just uh, you know because i i usually hit a, a a sort of a window i i hit sort of my runners high like around mile 10 but then like i start to you know i start and maybe just but 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 like are you just in constant euphoria or does it ebb and flow when you're it's just pain right bro no yeah after once you get into the 30s it's all pain brother all just pain but i mean with a marathon distance like that's kind of what it is it's like you hit you hit a wall a little bit then you break through the wall then you kind of get back into euphoria mode then you get out of it i recommend i don't know if you've ever done one i think you should really try a marathon sometime yeah, we'll see, man. I like I like I like keeping a little bit of uh, muscle mass, and I, I you know uh, I I'm so into CrossFit, and the, you know, but usually the 13 miles, I, I have bad feet. I'm not young whippersnapper like you are, so uh, so we'll see. Maybe that's something. Maybe at 50, I'll have to do that, and I'll just go. I'll have to go at like you know 13 minute miles. I thought the same thing when I started that I was going to turn into a string bean, but I've actually gotten stronger and gained muscle mass via running. Wow. Amazing. I'm just saying how are you feeding yourself uh, like on the, on the way? I probably consumed close to 10 to 15,000 calories. I burned about 30,000. Are people giving you like, like just little you have aid stations. There are like two, there were two aid stations on the course, you know, just constantly eating every third, 25 to 35 minutes. You got to get something down. Like I never want to look at another cliff bar again. Oh man. Wow. And those are bomb. And then what are you just like taking dumps, like in like the bushes and stuff? Well, we were in the desert, so there were no bushes <laughs> behind the cactuses. <laughs> Pretty intense. Dude, that's incredible, man. It's really incredible. I mean, you know, to push yourself to that limit, it just sounds astonishing to me. Like, uh, I, yeah uh how well how did you wake up one day and go i want to do this like what was the what was the journey to that it's just i think the natural progression of um you choose you can either stay at a distance or you can like keep pushing yourself just like with a movie i mean you, how much was the budget on deborah logan a million yeah and, and how much is the most recent netflix show like 50 million probably See, you just slowly elevated and pushed your limits. Yeah, there's a big difference, though. There's a big difference, you know. I'm, I'm trying not to sound crazy, man. <laughs> Look, well, man, you could you have worse habits, you know. I, I could get out to L.A. and start doing tons of drugs. Yeah, uh, ultra, ultra, ultras are... Actually, it's funny you you mentioned this because I they sent me a script, uh, this company, this ultra marathon runners that are invited to this, like, place and... It, it was just, but then like what you realize is sort of like the ritual and like, you know, they're all there, but they're, this company is like killing them one at, by a at a time, but they keep running, like the whole movie is them running on this trail and it's super freaky and weird. I just, I, it was hard for me to imagine how to produce that, you know? I guess um, you could kind of go with an angle like Hunger Games vibes a little bit. Yeah, it was very Hunger Games. Sure. Yeah, I could see that happening. I kind of, I, when I was out there, I kind of felt like it was Hunger Games. There was a 65-year-old woman behind me, and I was like, it's me or you, lady. And were you just super sunburned by the end and, like, just chafed? And Well, I told you I got rabbed, though, so I got pretty torn apart. Dude, it's crazy. Thank you. Take it as a compliment. <laughs> well, well, hey, man, I, I had a really great time running this. Thank you so much for your time. Sure. Good luck with everything, and uh, good luck with your move, man. Appreciate it. I'll – um. 
before we end, I got to go over three things. The first thing is for post-production purposes, I'm only going to say it once. You have to say, hi, your name, and this is my golden hour, directly after no break, hi, your name, and that was my golden hour. Hi, this is Adam Robitel. This is my golden hour, like that? You got part one, and we need part two. Okay, okay. Hey, this is Adam Robitel. This is my golden hour. Hey, this is Adam Robitel. That was my golden hour. It was about 99% execution. We'll take it. <laughs> That's why I'm not an actor. <laughs> I hear you. I was trying yeah. not to say golden shower. <laughs> if I had a dollar every time someone said, dude, is your name of the podcast, the golden shower? <laughs> um, okay, cool. Got that. Next. I will, uh, I'll get an address from you. I'm going to ship you out a shirt. What size are you? Uh, I used to a medium. Got it. Sounds good. And um, yeah, man, when I'm out in LA, I'll definitely shoot you a text. Hopefully you have time. I'd love to meet up sometime. Sounds good, dude. Take care of yourself. I hope you bring that deer with you and you can come. I will, brother. All right, man. All right, Great dude. to meet Bye. you. Thank you so much for your time. Sure. No problem. All right, bro.